as a, a young child growing up in Miami, and we were bused to Miami Beach, Jackie Gleason Performing Arts Center, to see a, a mini performance, as we call them. Of course, to us as, as young people, it was a major performance. You know, we, we, we didn't know the difference. And I had seen Revelations and Cry and Mr. Ailey's masterpieces on videotape, uh, but never up close and personal. And I think that was just such an eye-opening, heart-opening moment for me to see this live in that theater and to see this magic on stage, these larger-than-life dancers moving that way, such brilliance and eloquence. In a way, I learned more about my history through that movement than I could ever learn from a textbook or anything else uh, because the dance says so much. It's, it's brilliant. There's a reason why it still exists and people still break down the doors to see it. And I think that that movement, that moment moved me from Miami, Florida to now the helm of the company somehow. And so in a way, I don't even have to tell the story all the way through. I saw it, I was moved, I had my own revelations. Then I came to New York City and just made my way here to it. So I don't know. I, I, and I'm, you know, this is still so new for me that I'm still sometimes trying to examine what that is, you know. And maybe mm -hmm. I'll never know, and maybe that's the beauty of the whole thing. In some ways, it just feels right. feels like I'm where I'm supposed to be. Judith Jamison chose me. She knew, and now I know, and it fit. It fit. That was the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, Robert Battle. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Robert Battle assumed the role of artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater in July 2011. He's only the third artistic leader since Mr. Ailey began the company in 1958. Judith Jameson, a lead dancer in the company, picked up the mantle and became its second director with Ailey's death in 1989. She chose Robert Battle to follow her, saying at the time, Robert Battle is without question the creative force of the future. The Alvin Ailey Company is a rarity in the world of performing art. It operates in the black, selling out its annual five-week season in City Center's 2,200-plus seats. Seeing the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater is a joyous event, and its dedicated audience feels a great kinship with the company. Generations of children have been introduced to dance through Mr. Ailey's masterwork, Revelations, which premiered in 1960 and is still performed to standing room only audiences. So while Robert Battle brings a lot to the table, a career as a dancer, as an innovative choreographer, and as founder and director of his own company, Battleworks, he also had his work cut out for him. He needed to honor the wonderful traditions of the company while still moving it forward as a modern 21st century dance troupe. Well, if his very successful recently ended first season is any indication, Battle has found the right balance with an ambitious program that stretches the company in new directions while still maintaining its identity. I recently spoke with Robert Battle in his office at the spectacular Alvin Ailey Studios in New York City's Joan Wiles Center for Dance. 
I wanted to know how he met the challenge of balancing tradition with the future. I think that the whole structure of the company and the brilliance and genius of the founder, Alvin Ailey, was this openness of it being a repertory company and not a single choreographer company made it possible to be past, present, and future. And so that we don't ignore the past and our roots, where we come from in historical works and all of that, but that we are also at the same time honoring that but moving into the future and being in the present. It's so much a part of the reason this company I think is so relevant and so successful because of that. I don't have to give up one for the other, but I can do them all at the same time. It's really fascinating, I think, for the audiences uh, as well. Well, you know, that's what's interesting, and that was actually my third question, is why do you think Alvin Ailey mm -hmm. is so successful, this company, mm -hmm. when you know how many other arts organizations are struggling, yes. and you fill huge mm -hmm. theaters. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that the heart and soul remains intact. Judith Jamison, of course, who led the company for over 20 years uh, after the passing of Mr. Ailey, also made sure we remembered where we came from. I think that's so much the story of the company, but more than that, it's a bigger story of African Americans uh, in this country of really understanding their past and keeping those songs, uh, those stories uh, that are passed on from person to person, uh, from your grandmother. and That was a part of, to me, uh, represents a part of the survival. And I think the company has that embedded in it, you know, that sense of tradition. And I think that the audiences that come to witness the company when they see Revelations, the masterpiece Revelations, I think that they're reminded of that, their humanness. And I think that's a big part of it. Once you lose that identity, then you lose the whole thing. So if anything, going back to that first question about how do you move the company forward because it's such a historical company, in a way that does make it a fine line between how you do that. You know, when I'm choosing the repertory, uh, the new repertory, how does this relate to the image of the company, but also moves the company forward. So it's a little bit of a balancing act. Yeah, yeah. I would think it was. Let's talk about your first season. How mm -hmm. did you choose your dances? You, I think it was a pretty ambitious yes. first year. Yes, yes, it was. It was, and hard to have the last name battle and not, <laughs> you know, not <laughs> kind of go forth. Yeah, <laughs> go, go forth is right. And so just thinking of that, thinking of uh, Ohad Naharin, Israeli choreographer, American Israeli choreographer, Ohad Naharin, and thinking of Minus 16. I had seen that work uh, many years ago, but what I loved is, is that it challenged the audience to see dance in a different way, the bold statement, and that by the end, uh, the dancers step off the stage and into the audience and invites them on to the stage. Now that could seem simple, but I think if you're used to seeing these marvelous Ailey dancers on that proscenium stage, all of a sudden it's like 3D. They step up and they're, there they are. And now, not only that, there you are on the stage. I think for the people who are, who are still sitting in the audience, there's something about that that just breaks that, as we say in theater, fourth wall. So I knew that that would have uh, meaning, especially now as we uh, move into my time here. Uh, it's a historical moment for the company, and I thought that that was a statement I wanted to make. Also, Paul Taylor's Arden Court. 
Paul Taylor is uh, extremely influential, and I, I wanted to show the versatility of the dancers by choosing that work. And then the work by Rennie Harris, which was my first commission, called Home, that was inspired by uh, Bristol Myers Squibb contest, Fight HIV Your Way, that is inspired by the stories of people living with HIV. And I thought that was very important because we're about entertainment, but also about advocacy. And modern dance has that tradition of being not only seen, but being heard, you know, and modern dance being an American art form. And then hip hop coming from the streets. In a way, I could say it's like a reclaiming of our drums, you know, the influences of African dance and all of that. And hip hop speaks to survival. And so all of these things for me, I was looking on all fronts. And that's the wonderful thing about the position I'm in, that I don't have to be myopic, that I can have a broader view. And I think that's needed. Yeah, you have to, yeah. in fact, have a broader view. Yeah. And you also had, what, three pieces of your own, didn't you? you yes, had the hunt yes, yes, yes. Inside, mm -hmm. and then Takadini. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece. Oh, um, thank you. And I love the play on Indian dance. Yeah. Well, when I was a student at Juilliard, there was a class, an Indian dance class. I didn't take the class. But as I was deemed a lurker by my teacher, Carolyn Adams, I would always walk around and watch classes. And now, that's what I do here uh, in, in our building, the Joan Wow Center for Dance. I walk around and I, I look at what the students are learning, and I love to watch the exchange. And so I would watch these classes, and I found all the gestural language of Indian dance so fascinating, and the, uh, the use of the, the feet, and the sounds, and the stamping, and the complex rhythms, and all of that. And so when I created this work, I always look at it and think it's a combination between Michael Jackson and, and Indian dance and all of the things that mm -hmm. sort of interest me, you know. Just as an aside, the NEA has National Heritage Fellowships, mm. and we gave one a couple of years ago to Chitraj Das, who's an Indian dancer, and wow. he, to watch him perform was extraordinary. And he did a duet hmm. with Jason Samuel Smith, a tap dancer. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And to see them going together, wow. it was fantastic. Oh, wonderful, yeah. No, in folk dance, I mean the use of stamping and the use of those kinds of rhythms and, and being in contact with the ground, I think is a common thread, you know, in the way that tap dance has influences of clog dancing, you know, that there's all of these bridges that make for, and that's a, such an American story, is how these things are bridged together to become tap dance. Right. From the juba, from Africa, all the way through to master juba, to the influence of clog dancing, and then here we are with tap dancing. So much it has to do with, uh, with jazz, and how it has all of those influences. And in, in a way, that speaks to the ideals of this country, and I think uh, the Ailey Company also has that in its, its repertoire and how it reaches all of these sort of corners, especially when I, we go to places like uh, Russia and Germany and all over, now traveling with the company and seeing how people respond to the work. To watch people in Russia clapping to revelations in time, <laughs> might I add. Just so there's something wonderful about that passport to the world. But I think that's what dance does. What makes an Alvin Ailey dancer an Alvin Ailey dancer? I think that, that there's something about the Ailey dancer that, um, I've heard Miss Jamison say it so well, that it's 
more than steps, that they want to communicate something to the audience. And one could say, well, that's true of any dancer, but I think that what we look for is that dancer that is not constricted by movement, meaning that the movement is only a vehicle to express their personality. You know, so I look for people who have personalities and different personalities. I don't like, and Mr. Ailey didn't like, and Ms. Jamison didn't like cookie cutter dancers. Mr. Ailey always said, use my movement and show yourself. And that's very important. Sometimes we get leveled this charge of entertaining the audience. Well, that's built into the idea that they bought a ticket and they came to the theater to watch a performance. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's kind of what we all do in a proscenium stage. <laughs> but I think we also, <laughs> I think we also inspire audiences. I think that the Ailey dancer, of course, is, is an excellent technician, but I think that they show uh, what is unique and strange and beautiful about themselves, and that somehow they're able to communicate that. With all of those steps and all of those pirouettes, you remember the dancer, you remember the person. So person first, dancer, yes. And I think that, that that's what I look for. I look after I get through examining whether they can stand on one leg and, you know, all of that stuff that they have to be able to do, I really start to say, is this person communicating something to me? Will I be in a studio and be inspired by this person? You have to travel, you know, so much with each other and, and there's so much investment. It is like a family. That personality and that person who that person is becomes uh, extremely important. How did you get involved in dance? When, when did you know that dancing was what you wanted to do? Huh. Well, let's see. When I was young, I tried lots of different things, you know, singing, and then I was interested in uh, playing piano, so I, I took piano lessons. My mother's very theatrical on and off stage, it didn't matter. So I was influenced by her embracing of the arts, and so it was almost a part of my upbringing to express yourself in song, dance, music, whatever. And what happened was I had a, a soprano voice. I know it's hard to tell, I always say that, but it's true. <laughs> People always look at me puzzled, but that voice started to change as I started to grow up. And at that time, everybody was imitating Michael Jackson, and so was I. And also, my mother loved watching movies with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and Gene Kelly and all of those things. So I used to imitate them for my mother. So all of that sort of led me to dance. And then I studied martial arts because I was doing all of these sort of fancified things that other kids were not doing. In a way, they didn't understand that. And some of the guys particularly didn't understand that. So I figured I need to know how to defend myself because I grew up in an neighborhood where you should know that, you know. <laughs> and so I started taking martial arts. So then I had the flexibility and all that. So by the time I auditioned for dance in high school, I was kind of ready. I had all the things, musicality, had flexibility and discipline because of martial arts. And all of this stuff came into being through dance, you know. And I always say that I can use all of that, especially now as a choreographer. Do you remember the first time you performed on stage as a dancer? Hmm. Now that, I don't... Or the first time professionally? I'm not sure. I don't remember. I remember being a shy type. I guess not as much anymore, but it always took so much nerves for me to do it. 
I kind of grew out of that, but I just remember being so nervous. I'd be nervous that I would. I didn't forget the steps, but I would be just terrified. I remember the first times I can say that. I found it harder for me, it was harder to sing on stage because your voice is so delicate, you know, it's, it's so personal that way. So is movement, but movement always felt like the release of that tension, the release of that fear, because to move is, in a way, an act of being fearless. Uh, when you're on that stage expressing yourself through your limbs and, and you're panting and, and sort of, there's something about it that is inherently courageous. And so for me, dance was the thing that even though I was nervous, I could still get through it. The singing, sometimes the voice would leave me. <laughs> playing piano, uh, I remember as a little child playing in the church, you know, well, I get to have my little solo. And I knew it, I had practiced it, I was ready to go. And then I'd sit and I'd look at those keys and it looked like Greek, you know. <laughs> so, but dance, I could just plow through somehow. And so that's when I knew that that was home to me. Uh-huh. You could get to the other side. I could get to the other <laughs> side. You know, sometimes my Chopin solos missed a few pages, you know, and I just sort of in wherever I could <laughs> and get up and bow. People said, that didn't sound like the end of the piece. Anyway, it's, it's, it's true and I'm not making it up. <laughs> wow. Now you were the head of your own company called Battle Works. Works, yes. Can you just briefly talk about the movement from dancer to choreographer to heading your own company? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In most things that I tried to do, I studied martial arts, for instance. Then I would teach the neighborhood children, my friends, because I wasn't happy unless I was teaching it. I think at, at the heart of all of this is the teacher in me. And I would be, I barely knew this, what I was doing in martial arts, but I would get 10 people together and I would teach them martial arts. And so there's a through line there. So even as a dancer, uh, I was interested in choreography because I was also interested in pulling things out of dancers. Even when I was a student at, at Juilliard, I would work with a couple of friends of mine and I would make up movements and, and I was always interested in being in the front of the room, <laughs> not just in the room. And, and even when I was uh, younger than that as a child, my mother had to sit me down one day and say, you can't boss your friends around. You know, they're not your subjects. They're your friends. Because she overheard one of my friends outside of her bedroom window because we used to make little clubhouses out of wood. Uh -huh. But I figured that the clubhouse needed a captain of the clubhouse. And then my friend, he could be the co-captain and the rest, one was a chauffeur who would push me around in a sharp shopping cart so that I had business I had to do and they would push me down the street. One time they pushed me over. I think it was intentional, but they say that it was an accident. Anyway, I'm investigating. So um, and so what happened is she overheard him say, when I went in to use the restroom, say to the other friend, say, you know, we don't need no boss. I don't know why he always wants to be the boss. So she overheard, and that's when she sat me down and said, Robert, you can't. Well, here I am. <laughs> And so, <laughs> in a way, going from dancer, I was dancing with the Parsons Dance Company, and I was always still creating in hotel rooms wherever I could. So I was always still making things, and David saw that, and David uh, 
allowed me to choreograph on the company. So I was dancing and choreographing for a little while. And that started to take over once Sylvia Waters, who's the head of Ailey Two since 1974, since the beginning of the second company, and she saw my work and she, well, she saw my work because I kept, you know, sort of pushing it on her. Please come and see my work. Please see my work. And she saw it on the Parsons Company and then gave me my first way into the Ailey Company, my real way in by commissioning me to do a work in 1999. And so as that started to grow, and then uh, Judith Jamison commissioned me to do work, my first work on the main company was called Juba. That moved me into, uh, the, the choreography started to take over. And so then I stopped dancing and I started my own company, Battleworks. And from there, it just sort of progressed. And you never know who's watching you. I mean, I would have never, people ask me, did you ever think this would happen? I said, absolutely not, you know. Some people like to say, yeah, well, I always dreamed of this moment. No, I did not dream of this moment. Uh, and I'm pretty, you know, I have a pretty healthy imagination and a healthy ego, but I just never pictured it. But I think there were people watching, and, and here I am. That's why I always tell students, you never know who's watching you, you know. So. The vision has to change. If one is a dancer, you're, you're basically concerned about your steps, clearly in, in conjunction with the other performers, mm -hmm. whereas the choreographer has to think of the entire stage, yeah. and then the artistic director has to think of the entire mm -hmm. season and the seasons to come. Yes, yes, you do. You have to always be a few steps ahead. And that's something I think you grow used to as a choreographer, is being in a not empty space, but a space with dancers, and sometimes an empty space, but being able to reimagine that space takes a little bit of being sort of a little bit ahead of yourself. Even when I'm sort of dealing with the dancers, you know, I'm always watching them and, and thinking of which way are they going to go, either with their personalities or, or how are they feeling emotionally, and always trying to be a little bit of a, a, a step ahead so that you can lead. You know, otherwise you can't if you're trailing. That's just a part of the way I think movement is, though. To be a dancer, I mean, we always just stay in the moment, but we also contradict ourselves when we teach and talk about dance, because we say, you have to be in the moment, but in a way you always have to, like driving, think ahead. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, because there's, eventually you're gonna run into a stoplight or a, a corner that you have to turn or whatever, so you always have to have in your mind that I'm where I am, but what is the next step, you know? And so that to me is inherent in what we do and how we learn. Well, part of what you're doing as the next step is the New Directions Choreography Lab. Tell yeah. me about it, it seems fascinating. Oh, that, you know, I'm very proud of that program and, and, and what it's already doing. For me, something I talked about a while ago and just talking about the need for young, uh, or not young, <laughs> choreographers to have the, and this is sound funny, the opportunity to fail. Meaning that not everything that you create will be you know, a masterpiece or even a good work, but the exploration of invention is critical to a creative person's development. And I find that what happens is as uh, we have less and less companies that are thriving, what happens is that 
sometimes the choreographer is stretched in so many directions just to make ends meet that the idea of process is less and less. And so then the choreographer has to survive in the field sometimes by continuing to do the same thing, you know, because the idea of taking big risks becomes too risky. It can be a career killer. Yeah, yeah. It's like everything is a big commission, and it's going like, do or die. And I'm going, no, well, what if the choreographer was supported to just be in the space with dancers that they were not paying and just say, you know, I've always wanted to go in this different direction. I want to try it out and not have it based on product because I think that's something in our culture that has been... uh, the imbalance of that, of it being always about product, 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 and just sort of held together with airplane glue, you know. So this is wonderful because four choreographers are chosen uh, each year, two per semester. They work with uh, the students of the Ailey School, and they also have with that, they're paired with a creative advisor, so someone in the field but who's been around and and can sort of be an eye for them and sort of keep them honest. Someone from the company? No. Or not necessarily? Not, no, not mm-hmm. necessarily. And the, the thing about that is often as we get more successful as choreographers, we get more and more lonely in the sense that no one will tell you the truth because you're the boss. And so to have another eye or someone to say, you know, Maybe if you think about this, or when you write books, you have editors. We don't have that in dance, you know. We sort of just have to trust and wait to read about it in the paper. I don't think that's a great tool for learning and growing. And so this is another way of looking at it. And so they get seven weeks, which is almost unheard of, to create. And I don't tell them, you know, you have to have this much material. If they want to work on a phrase, if that's what they want to do, that's what they need to do. But the benefit is twofold because it also benefits the dancers of the Ailey School. We have a BFA program. The school is extensive and and extremely important. And so they get a chance to work with choreographers who are now making work. And so that's a part of networking. And knowing that language, that little dance between choreographer and dancer is very important. And sometimes you don't learn that until you leave an institution, and then all of a sudden you have this job. And like, how do I communicate with this choreographer? What do they need? And how do you do that? That's a very particular thing to be able to, to do. And I remember having to learn on the job. And so unique to dance. Yeah, so unique to dance, right. Because you don't have just, you know, your notes in front of you and you go home and, you know, practice that way. It's so much about community. And knowing how to navigate that is important. And I think this is an opportunity for the young dancers to learn that. So it's really, I think, important in some of the, the, the ways that we need to look at how do we support creative people now? What do they need now to make good work? And then, of course, that will affect eventually what we see on the stage uh, for the Albany American Dance Theater. I find it interesting that you're not just making this available to emerging choreographers, Mm -hmm. but it's also for mid-career choreographers. Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes they're left out of the conversation. You know, there are all of these programs or funding or whatever it is for emerging. You hear that word a lot, emerging choreographers, emerging choreographers. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are the established choreographers. And so often there's, there's a 
place for them. There's, the master. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's funding. Oh, well, look at their body of work. Of course, give them that. Oh, they need space. Give them that. And I'm not saying that we just have all this wealth, mm -hmm. but I am saying that the mid-career choreographer sometimes is lost in the middle. And so I think we have to look at that as a field and, and how we're addressing that. I think also, too, it's really important that more and more we learn as a dance community how to support each other and not be threatened by that. I think we, we're constantly complaining about not having enough outside support. And I think that that may be true, but how can we support each other in new ways? How can we, we look at ways that will really benefit the entire field? How can we come together around this thing that we love, which is dance? Mm -hmm. and, and that's a way of hopefully influencing other people to take a look at that. And I wondered, was that percolating in the back of your mind by bringing Paul Taylor and using his piece, Art and Court, yeah. for the first, your first season? Yes, yes. I, I'm really looking at building these alliances, you know. I'm, I'm trying to say something that really has to do with my upbringing, in a way. That's why this fits so well. I mean, I was, I was raised by my first great aunt and uncle because my birth mother was in a situation where she couldn't raise me. And so at three weeks old, my great aunt and uncle took me in, bow-legged and all of that. And they got me braces for my legs, and so I could stand up straight eventually. And now here I am standing on this precipice. And then their daughter, my cousin, is the one who I refer to when I've been talking to you about my mother. And so there's something about the spirit of that. I have a lot of gratitude about things that have happened positive for me in my life, and I owe it to that moment of generosity. And so I think that that generosity that I have comes out of that, my wanting to teach. If I'm learning something, I don't feel comfortable in it unless I'm passing it on to someone or someone's. <laughs> it's a part of who I am. Finally, mm -hmm. three wishes. Three wishes. Three wishes for dance or for the company. Oh, wow. Well, one wish is that we continue to expand, that we're only limited by imagination, that the sky is the limit. I don't know if I just said two wishes in one. Let's see. That I continue to make work that is meaningful for the dancers and the audience, but more importantly, meaningful for me. Also, that somehow, when I'm ready to do the little sidestep that Miss Jamison has done, that I've left some kind of legacy that leaves the company better than it was when I came in, and that it is continuing to inspire people. That somehow all of these things that I'm talking about, the choreography lab, that someday one of those choreographers says, you know, I owe a lot to that choreography lab for illuminating something in me that I didn't know was there, but also for the dancers. For somebody to say that, I think, for me, is my greatest wish. Robert Battle, thank you, and congratulations on a magnificent beginning. Thank you. That was Robert Battle, artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. The company's just begun its national tour. To see if it's coming to a city near you, go to alvinailey.org and click on Calendar. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from I've Been Buked, arranged by Hall Johnson. <laughs>
Didn't the Lord Deliver Daniel? Arranged by James Miller. Fix Me Jesus. Arranged by Hall Johnson. Processional Honor, Honor. Wade in the Water. Sinner Man. And Rock of My Soul in the Bosom of Abraham. All adapted and arranged by Howard A. Roberts. All from the work Revelations and used courtesy of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, the director Stanley Nelson discusses his film Freedom Riders. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Come on, come on.